Several weeks ago, I was reading an article on cynicism, which answers the question, how fun is Derek at parties? Um, but I was. I was, reading, uh, I was reading an article on cynicism, and while I was reading it, I came across a book title that really intrigued me. It's called Merchants of Doubt. And the Merchants of Doubt is a, an expose of the tobacco industry's efforts to perpetrate lies about its products in the face of overwhelming data that talked about how, how um, devastating to Americans' health cigarette smoking was. And those, those efforts were successful because their primary weapon was cynicism. What they did was, when faced with a, a deluge of studies showing how bad cigarette smoking was, was to fund their own research, which, did, which didn't seek to actually refute the research that was out there. It just tried to muddy the waters to get Americans to be able to less see the truth clearly with all of this other information out there. The tobacco industries began to manufacture doubt the way they churned out cigarettes, and they created plausible deniability for the in-your-face data about smoking. This is what cynicism does. It teaches us to look at the truth and to see deceit. It causes us to think that the facts that are right in front of us are not worth seeing anymore. And a person who isn't prepared to see things for what they really are is a person who is primed to be manipulated, a person who is profoundly vulnerable to those who would try to deceive them. This is why I believe cynicism is the primary weapon that Satan wields against followers of Jesus. He creates it in us by distorting reality. It's a weapon that he used first in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? But it's a weapon that I've also seen him use in this part of the book of Romans, which we are studying together as a church. We read of its author, Paul's struggle with sin in Romans 7, of not doing the thing he wants to do and finding himself doing all of the time the very thing he doesn't want to do. And Satan whispers, see, you'll always be my slave. And we try, we try to push back. We remind Satan that Paul concludes that Christ sets us free from sin and death. But Satan counters, that just means when you die. As long as you have a pulse, as long as you have a heartbeat, as long as you're breathing, you will be my slave. And with the truth about who we are and our battle with sin sufficiently distorted, we face our own sin struggle with a shrugged, oh well, whatever, never mind. And we allow Satan to sow doubt about the functional reality the functional reality of the Christian life. The reality that in Christ we died to the power of sin. And as a result of believing that we are hopelessly engaging sin in this life, we are primed to be manipulated and vulnerable when Satan says, don't look there, this is reality. It's important to understand as we walk through the book of Romans that Paul isn't describing the total experience of the Christian life in Romans 7. 
There he's talking about his battle with sin. His real battle with sin, a a battle we can all identify with. But in our passage today, he's going to talk about his victory over those battles. So if you would please find Romans chapter 8 in your copy of God's Word. It's in the New Testament. If you need to use your table of contents uh, to find it, you can do so. In in this passage today, we're, we're going to work to understand what Paul is saying through the first 17 verses. And then we're going to end by thinking about the day-to-day difference in our own battle with sin that is made by what Paul shares with us. So I hope you found Romans chapter 8. If you would please look at verse 1. Let's start walking through this together. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This idea of there being no condemnation in Christ is actually the concluding argument of this section of the book, which goes all the way back to Romans chapter 4, verse 1. And it is the theme of the entire chapter, really, of Romans chapter 8. One of our teaching teams thinks it's actually the theme of the entire book. So it's really, really important that we understand what is Paul saying when he says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And simply, it's this. Those who follow Jesus... Those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus as their Savior and their Lord have been delivered from sin's penalty. What is sin's penalty? It is spiritual death. It is separation from God. So when Paul says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, he says the penalty against our sin is gone. Now Paul has talked at length in the book of Romans, particularly in Romans 1 through 3, about how all of mankind, because of our sin and because of our rebellion against God, are objects of God's wrath. But followers of Jesus have had that wrath of God against them extinguished fully in the sacrifice of Christ. There is nothing left of God's wrath for a follower of Jesus. There is no condemnation because of Jesus. His sacrifice was sufficient. That's what he means in verse 1. He's going to now develop that idea a little further. He says this in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We say, okay, what does that mean? Well, he's going to tell us. He's going to develop that idea further in in verses 3 and 4, but he's going to work back to front. First, he's going to tell us in verse 3 how Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. Here's how. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, that's a lot of words, but basically what Paul is saying is that Jesus met the standard in full of God's law. He met the standard of keeping it. He never sinned. And then he met the standard in payment for our rebellion against it by paying with his own life For our penalty. That's how we are set free from the law of sin and death. Now he's going to explain what he meant when he said that the law of the spirit of life has set us free. He says at the end of verse 4, we who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit are those who are set free and that's how we're set free. He's saying that the power of sin broken leads us to a new way of walking a new way of living that is enabled by the Holy Spirit who resides in us. This is not an isolated 
uh, affirmation of that truth by Paul. All throughout his writings, he presses in on the idea that with the law of sin and death removed, with the, the animosity between us and God removed because of the sacrifice of Christ, we enter into such a radically new relationship with God that His Spirit actually resides in us. And it is by that Spirit in us that we are enabled to live the truth of what Christ has done for us. We are able to live set free from the law of sin and death. And the key to living in the power of that enablement and the power of the Spirit in us is found in what he says next. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then he concludes in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to go, hey, the word mind's important. I mean, he said it over and over again. What he's saying is that we need to live lives. It's this simple We need to live lives that are laser-focused on who we are in Jesus, on our new identity in Christ. As people who are set free, that's not a metaphor, who are set free from the power of sin, and we need to stop dwelling, thinking about, setting our minds on what is no longer true about us. That we are hopeless captives to sin in the power of sin. That was true before Jesus. That is not true after Jesus. Paul is saying that the victory over the experiences that are real for him, that he described at the end of Romans 7, of wanting to do one thing, finding himself all the time actually doing another, the key for victory for him is to focus on who he is in Jesus Christ. Which is the exact opposite of the way we approach our battle with sin. We tell people to focus on the sin, to defeat the sin. We talked about this some last week, which puts us in the position of constantly thinking about our sin and rarely, if ever, thinking about who we are in Christ and thinking on Christ. And therefore, as a result of us Adopting these strategies where we're constantly focused on the sin, we tend to think that the battle, we, we succumb to the thinking that the battle is entirely up to us. Pornography is a scourge. It is a blight on American sexual health, and it is a stumbling block to many men, even in this church, who feel enslaved to it. And so someone who's struggling with that opens up about it with a a brother or sister in Christ, or they come to an elder, or they come to a pastor, or they go to a Sunday school teacher and say, this is my struggle, what would you have me do? And you know what we say to them? We say accountability groups, which do what? Focus on your sin. Content filters, which do what? Nothing. Nothing. Look, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the importance of content filters to protect young children in your home from accidental exposure to porn. But every man that I know who has content filters on the computer know how to get around them. Every one of them. 
And you say, well, accountability groups work. Well, you do what I do long enough, and you will learn to never underestimate the capacity for someone to look you dead in the eye and lie to you. And that starts to happen when accountability groups press too close. We lie. We work around the content filters because we are telling ourselves, I'm powerless over porn. No, we are not. We are not. Not if we're followers of Jesus who are inhabited by the Spirit of God. We are not powerless over sexual immorality or drunkenness or gossip or outbursts of anger or greed or any of the other things that Paul lists as sins, signs of rebellion against God in Romans chapter 1. We are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, that identity needs to frame our battle with sin. That's the theme of these next verses. Look at verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's not saying it's, it's doubtful that He might. He's speaking to Christians here. That is a hypothetical if. He knows uh, that the Spirit dwells in someone who's an authentic follower of Jesus, if, in fact, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, we still in this flesh, as Paul talked about in Romans 7, uh, have, to, have to fight through not having our, our, our bodies yet fully redeemed because we are in the flesh, he says, uh, we have to fight through sin. The body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness, the, the Spirit of God in us, in this body of sin. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, where sin lives, give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, which dwells in you. Your victory over sin, my victory over sin, even chronic sin in this life is just as possible as your future in Christ, and is as certain as the resurrection of Christ. Did you see him say that? I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you can transcend through the Spirit living in you, the same Spirit that rose him from the dead, the sin battle that you face. And with that settled, Paul closes on this. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. We don't have to do what the flesh tells us to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by, led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're no longer who you were. Quit living in that identity. You've been so radically transformed, you're now children of God. No longer as enemies. He raised that in Romans 5. No longer as enemies. You're his children. You're the sons and daughters of God. And he says this in closing. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified in him, which is an idea that he develops in our passage that we'll look at next week. He's simply saying as, as we continue to battle sin, suffering through the battle in our flesh and in our relationships, remain committed to live a holy life. And if you do that, you will constantly be affirmed by the Spirit that you're not alone and live lives by His power that instead of giving testimony to the power of sin, will give testimony to the glory of Christ. What is your sin battle? We've all got them. To the surprise of no one, the pastor's got them. Everyone has a battle with sin. Now, some of them are more socially acceptable or less relationally damaging than others in our eyes. But we all have battles with sin. What's your sin battle? All right, now let me ask you, how have you attacked it? We've already mentioned for porn, content filters, accountability groups. Maybe you struggle saying unholy, ungodly words when something doesn't go your way. So maybe you said, you know, to, to fight that, we're going to create a swear jar. <laughs> and, you know, that's going to be in the house and everybody's going to drop a buck or five or a penny or whatever into it if they let an ungodly word fly out. Maybe you suffer with materialism, greed. And so you think, you know what, to fight that, I'm going to cut up my credit cards to combat that. How have any of those things worked? Can I offer a guess? My guess is, is that you funded your next vacation from the money in the swear jar and that you bought outfits for the vacation on your brand new credit card. That's what I think. That's what happens. You get my point. Whatever the sin battle is, and we all have them, we tend to repeatedly run back to sin-focused Identity that no longer exists founded strategies to defeat them, and we fail time and time and time again. So let's do what's easy. Let's admit that we live Romans 7 lives, but let's start taking seriously what Paul says in Romans 8. Let's build our lives on what Paul says in Romans 8. And let me give you three truths as we wrap things up here upon which you can found your life as you walk into your battle with sin. Here's the first one. You have victory in Christ. You have victory in Christ. Look at verse 1 again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Not that there might someday be no condemnation. There's no maybe there will be condemnation one of these years in your life. There is no condemnation. Read verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free. Not that it might, if you try hard, set you free. Not that someday, someday, when you die, it'll set you free. It has set 
you free. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If you are in Christ, Jesus will give life to your mortal bodies as you battle sin. Not that He might give you life or someday when you die. He will give you life. He will, in this life, give you His life to combat sin. Now, folks, those are either just pretty words or pious nonsense or they're the truth. This is either our identity or it's not. And if it is our identity set free from the law of sin and death by the sacrifice in Christ and able to live set free from it by the power of the Spirit in us, then that needs to be the worldview through which we attack sin. It doesn't need to be. I'm going to beat it through my accountability group or my content filter or my swear jar or my credit card cutter. It needs to be approached from our our identity that we are a child of God. We're not a slave to sin. We're a child of God, and that needs to frame everything. You have right now victory in Christ. Next statement, live. Live in your victory in Christ. We've already talked about what it looks like to live what Paul says is a mind that is set on the flesh. It looks like content filters and swear jars and cut-up plastics and a whole host of other failed strategies. Failing because the mind is set because it is focused, preoccupied with sin. And what feels like a past life for me now, I used to own and drive a Harley. That was very enjoyable for me to do when I lived in rural Oklahoma. Decidedly less enjoyable when I lived among the maniac drivers of Johnson County, Kansas. And so it didn't take long for me living up here to realize um, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, This seems to be what my mom always said it would be, a death trap, (laughs) and uh, I'm going to sell it and and get off of it, haven't ridden since. If you ever see me riding a motorcycle, um, I probably had a mental break, and you need to pull me over or call authorities. It's just never going to happen again. But there's this weird phenomenon when you ride a motorcycle that you have to be on the lookout for. It's called target fixation. It is such a sensory immersive experience where you feel the wind and your peripheral vision is is more enhanced because you're in the wide open and and everything about the road just is rocking through your body that it's easy to have one part of that sensory overload capture your attention to your detriment. That's what target fixation is. There's been many a motorcycle accident investigation where someone driving a motorcycle without braking drove straight through a curve to disastrous results. Because in their mind, they're thinking, don't go straight, don't go straight, don't go straight. And that turns in their brain to go straight, and they do, and it's bad. That's why content filters and swear jars and everything else stops working. Don't sin, don't sin, don't sin turns into sin because your mind is set there. Paul says people born in the Spirit need to be preoccupied with Jesus. 
not relegating him to my devotion or my quiet time that takes place hurriedly in the morning, but to be as an act of my life preoccupied to Jesus. So in my battle with sin, I need to stop constantly thinking of myself as an addict or a drunk or a potty mouth or a materialist or an angry dude or greedy or whatever. And instead, my mind needs to be fixed and focused, preoccupied with Jesus. Fix your mind on him. I've talked ad infinitum about what this means for us, but let me just repeat the chorus once again. You need to pursue Jesus using the spiritual disciplines of Scripture reading and prayer. Notice I did not say you need to read the Bible more and you need to pray more. I said pursue Jesus through reading the Bible and prayer, which means we stop reading the Bible as a box to check or, for all of us smart people, a riddle to be solved or... as just a a performative act of righteousness, and instead we need to view it for what it is, the primary platform that God has given us for for us to encounter on a regular daily basis the life of Jesus, and then use that to inform our prayers. This year, I'm using a resource for this. I want to recommend it to you. It's called Seeking God's Face, Praying with the Bible Through the Year. You're saying, well, I'll buy that next Christmas. No, buy it now. You can just drop right in, and it's constructed in such a way that it can be a resource for you for the next 10 years. It's built taking you through it as a guide into 2032. You can get it right now. You won't have missed anything. Get in it. And what it does is it gives you portions of Scripture to read slowly through and to pray through. And after you've had that kind of free time in prayer... It gives you some guided things to pray about, which are are very, very helpful. It's an opportunity for us to use something as a tool to pursue Jesus and meet him on the pages of his word. This is what it means to set your mind on Jesus, to be preoccupied with him, to pursue him in his word, and to live with that encounter throughout the rest of your day. And if Jesus is filling your thoughts, you might be surprised how that sin, which you think about all the time, not only no longer captures your thought, it doesn't become an activity in your life. And it's all because you turned your eyes on Jesus and kept them fixed There, live in your victory in Christ. And then finally, live out your victory in Christ. And here's what I mean by that. We have unintentionally preached in churches like ours for far too long what one author calls the gospel of sin management. In other words, we've told people that they can legislate their way to Jesus. Here's the rule... Follow it, try really hard to live it, and you will defeat sin. What we aren't preaching to our neighbors, our friends, our family, is a radical transformation because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Are you unintentionally unintentionally telling those around you that the key to life is to know some rule that you have pulled out of context... In Scripture, to live that rule, and if you do that, you'll be good. 
If you are, you're like a Pharisee heaping burdens on others you yourself can't lift. This is why I'm about to say what I'm about to say. The world does not need a Judeo-Christian ethic. They need Jesus. And the platform for which the world to see Jesus is my life and your life. And so if, if you are disheartened by what you see around you, Scripture gives us no other place to look first than the mirror. The world does not need a Judeo-Christian ethic. They need Jesus. I periodically get emails from concerned people who are concerned about our students. You know, as soon as they get out, survey after survey says, as soon as they get out of our, our youth ministries, once they get to college or once they hit the workforce, they abandon the faith altogether. And I think, they tell me, it's because of this thing or this thing or this thing. It's because they've not been confronted with creation science or they've not been confronted with the idea that addiction is bad and they've not been confronted with the idea of saving themselves to marriage. And so what we need to do, they say, is give people more and more and more information. And as I get into my grandpa years, I'm getting a little cranky like a grandpa. And my response is starting to be something like this. They're not abandoning the faith in college or the workforce because they didn't get enough science in the youth group or didn't get enough addiction is bad in youth group and they didn't get enough uh, sex before marriage is bad in the youth group. The reason they're abandoning the faith is that there are too few people in the church they've intended their entire life for whom the Christian faith seems to work. Because we're not living in our identity. We're just as angry as everybody else. We're just as scared as everybody else. And to today's point, just as defeated by sin as everybody else. And so they're concluding, once they're out from underneath the house and the church in which they grew up, that this is all a fairy tale. It's all an attempt to impose outdated morality on me. Fixing what happens in college starts with us in this room looking more like Jesus, of being fascinated with Jesus, of being preoccupied with Jesus, so that when different ideologies and worldviews confront our students once they are in college or in the workforce, they will, they will immediately see those as being a sham because they'll say, that, that's not where I want to go with my life because I know my pastor or I know my elder or I know my Sunday school teacher or best mom and dad. are living for Jesus. I know he's real because I, what I woke up and saw every day. We 
have been set free from the law of sin and death by the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have been set free to live beyond that power by the Spirit in us. Which leads us back to where I started, cynicism. I'm looking at people who are cynical about their faith. I guarantee you. Because they've they've heard far too often Satan say, not really. That's later. Your mind right now. Fix your mind on Jesus. You're no longer a slave to the sin from which he set you free. You are a child of God, inhabited by the Holy Spirit. You, by his power and his strength, can have victory over sin. Let's pray together.